Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week is Professor Dame Anne Johnson, Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at University College London, who has recently become President of the Academy of Medical Sciences. Dame Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So for those who are less familiar with the work of the Academy of Medical Sciences, what are its key functions? Well, we're one of the national academies in the UK and we're an independent body. We represent the diversity of medical science. So that is everything from very basic science through to some of the areas I'm involved in, like public health and global health. And what we're trying to do is to focus on advancing biomedical and health research and how we can translate that into benefits from society. So we want to ensure that UK and global health is improved by the best research look how important that is during this terrible pandemic and that we are leaders in that area. That's a really important part of the, um, uh, the industrial strategy and the science strategy for the UK and that we really collaborate well with others. We see ourselves as having an important international mission in working with other academies in collaborations which are partnerships of equals and we want to make sure that independent medical science is really addressing some of the big issues that affect society. And one big one, for example, we're discussing at the moment is the issue of the relationship between climate change and health. And of course, we really pride ourselves also on our work in, on public engagement, because we think it's incredibly important that the public too have a great voice in science, not just as recipients of information, but as participants. And that's been an important part of our work also on the pandemic. So you've mentioned a number of things and we'll pull some of those out. One of the things you mentioned was the pandemic. Uh, and of course, that's, if you like, the, the big ongoing situation that the whole country is in. How has the Academy of Medical Sciences supported efforts to tackle the coronavirus pandemic? The first thing to say is, of course, like all the national academies, in a sense, our greatest asset is the wonderful group of fellows who are elected to our fellowship and uh, they have been contributing in so many ways uh, across many scientific disciplines to the pandemic, either in their own research or in the way they've been supporting others through the pandemic or the way they've been working, obviously, in universities and, and, and other environments, which have had to change so much the way they deliver their mission of research and teaching. But specifically, we have been publishing a number of reports. We started in April with a mental health report, uh, which was a report of which went into Lancet, and where we raised the many issues relevant to mental health, which would arise uh, from the pandemic, both potential direct effects of the virus, but actually equally importantly, and probably much bigger problem is the problem of isolation impacts on mental health, particularly on young people. In May, we published another report where we reviewed some of the key immunological questions and we've been working on that with our colleagues in the British Society of Immunology. I was formerly Vice President International of the Academy and we've been working with colleagues all over the world and whereas normally we're meeting up in person this time around we've done a lot of work on Zoom like everybody else but interestingly there have been some benefits we've burned an awful lot less carbon our carbon footprint's gone down but we've actually been able to connect with people in many more countries across Africa, across Latin America, and in other parts of the world. One of the biggest pieces of work we've done is there is one called Preparing for a Challenging Winter, 
And you might have seen that uh, in the press. It was very much been used to inform government policy where we warned, actually, unfortunately, uh, but we warned of the potential for a major second wave, which sadly we have seen. And we are still really reviewing that work and hope to go back to think about where we really do need to continue to prepare and think about the long run impacts of this pandemic, not just always be in this very reactive mode, but moving forward to think about longer term impacts, both health impacts, but also societal impacts. So you can see we've been doing quite a lot of work. Yeah, a whole range of things there. One of the things you mentioned was on mental health and the paper in The Lancet from April 2020. And obviously, that paper came out right at the beginning of the first lockdown, where people could look forward as to what the implications of, of the lockdown could be. And now we're several months later. What do we know about the implications of coronavirus and the lockdown on mental health? Well, I think there is more work being done, and we're pleased that actually the work has stimulated a bit more investment in research in, in mental health. But I think we need to be looking at the area in some some greater detail. It's not particularly my own research area, so I don't know the field in a lot of in a lot of detail. But I think we've been very impressed, particularly by the impacts on young people. I mean, we've heard quite a lot about the impacts on students of increased um, levels of mental health problems. But I think we also need to be thinking about these things in the long term. There are other areas where some areas where there may have been benefits, but also other areas where there may have been problems. And we are very aware also that we need to do more research on frontline medical staff and nursing staff. And in fact, across the NHS, because you can see what stressful environments they've been working in. And we need to think about them as a priority for the future. So a lot more that we need to know, know about. And I think that is you know, a big question for future research. We've been impressed in our public engagement work. And these are qualitative observations, not quantitative observations, but working with young people through a comic project we have called DIVOC 91, which is COVID spelt backwards. We've had a fantastic group of young people working with us and they have really emphasized to us the stress they've been under in this environment. So they're a hugely important group and we need to hear their voices more. And they've been doing that by actually now, those young people have been talking to Independent Sage, for example, and hearing their voices has been really moving, but really challenging to us. And we have to, I think, listen to that challenge of young people. Where you identify needs for future research, is this something that you as the Academy then feed through into research funders, such as the Medical Research Council? Yes, so obviously a lot of our fellows are involved in one way or another advising government through SAGE and its subgroups. But we as an academy regard it as very much a, as to be involved in policy is a very important part of our work. I'm personally not necessarily with my academy hat on, but I am a member of the UK RI oversight group, which is looking at the investments in research and trying to bring areas where we need to stimulate research to the fore. And, you know, I've been working also on the uh, National Core Studies platform. This is a group chaired by Sir Patrick Valance um, as chief scientist trying to make sure that we have a set of key core studies in some of the key areas that can inform policy so that we have a direct line from research, obviously into stage and so on, and you hope then on into policy. So that is a very, very big part of our work, both 
during the pandemic, but also outside of it. I want to ask you about a different issue now, which is to do with health data. I mean, we hear that it's quite critical to improving healthcare, a better use of health data, but obviously there's both practical issues in that and ethical issues in that. What has the Academy been doing to support some of the debates in this area and where has it got to? Well, of course, health data is absolutely critical to so many of our endeavours nowadays, isn't it? In public health, in genomics, all of these things rely very heavily on having good data, as, it, as indeed actually do a lot of the new developments in the way we're using machine learning and AI for, for medical care and for new interventions. So very important. But you're right. The ethics and governance of this is also very important. So we, we started our first work actually in 2004 and we produced a report called Personal Data for Public Good. And then we've also been involved in working to influence EU data protection legislation so that we can optimize the protection of data and get the ethics right, but also be able to use these data for public good. And we did in 2018 bring together a piece of work where we worked very much with patients and the public to understand their expectations. And we, we produced a report called Our Data-Driven Future in Healthcare, People and Partnerships at the Heart of Health-Related Technologies. And that report has been widely used. And it is very pleasing now to see the way that we are getting actually much better use of data to, to inform what we do. So the Development of Health Data Research UK, HDR UK, which was formerly the FAR Institute, very important development which I think is enabling us to do exactly that, to be able to use health data in a meaningful way to improve patient care, but in, a, in an environment which really protects the data as well. Really interesting. And you can see this is an area where if we get it right, you can really take forward a number of different things. I wanted to ask you separately, obviously we've been talking mainly about the work of the Academy of Medical Sciences, but you, as an individual, have been involved personally in some of the high-level groups which have been advising the government recently during the pandemic. What's that whole experience been like for you as a, as a scientist, as a researcher? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because I think, you know, I've worked in infectious disease epidemiology all my life and was beginning to spend less time, I guess, on direct research and more time on other areas and I found myself sucked in to all this, where we all suddenly had to become experts overnight. And of course, none of us were experts because this was a new virus. And it's interesting looking back on some of the things, I can remember listening to the radio at the beginning and think, well, how do people really know that? And of course, there were a lot of things that we didn't know. And we have to continue to be really humble about what we don't know. So for me, it's been fascinating, also exhausting sometimes. And I, I'm not in the middle of it. I, for the people who are really you know, like the CMO and the chief scientists, I mean, that, and all the people at PHE, they have worked so hard. So to that extent, I've been sitting on the sidelines. But of course, what has been interesting is, I think all of us hungry for information, all of us trying to understand as we went along, our involving understanding of this virus, first discovering, of course, that there was much more of it had been transmitted than we realised initially, because we didn't have the testing in, in place to, to really understand adequately how much infection we had. And then these new things we hadn't realized, like spread of asymptomatic transmission. When we still don't know answers to all these questions, what is the 
what is the level of immunity and how long does it last to this virus? And gradually we're discovering people can get reinfections, the emergence of all these new variants. And every week, every week, I would say, sometimes every day, there is some new scientific thing you've got to get your head around. One of the challenges, I've done quite a lot of media work, not as much as others have done. And I, I always, you know, you, you have to think very carefully about what we know and what we don't know, how best to express it. And also, one thing I think has been very complicated is the extent to which science is getting very mixed up with politics. And that's not a comfortable sp space, I think, for a lot of scientists. And how do you kind of steer that course, try to stick to the science and to the evidence, but knowing also that in the end, the discoveries we make, all these so-called magic bullets or game changers that I keep hearing about, I mean, they are incredibly important, but they're never the solution on their, in, on their own. You've got to be able to make sure that they, whatever it is, is used appropriately, that we understand you know, the performance characteristics of tests, that we use them in an appropriate way, that the public can access them, that we take the right, right actions on the basis of them. And very often, that's much more about implementation science than the sort of discovery in the first place. So all these are really tricky, tricky topics, but of course play absolutely to my own area of public health, where we are very used to the idea of the kind of muddy boots end of things, getting your hands dirty, delivering, and, and not just focusing only on the, the technology alone. How do you feel that the process of linking the scientific advice with the policy making has gone? I mean, it's never going to be a smooth process in a crisis, right? I understand. But do you feel that government has understood the scientific advice and been able to use it in their decision making process? Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, I don't attend SAGE on a regular basis, so I can't comment a lot on that kind of direct line other than what we all pick up on the, on the media. Clearly, there has been an enormous amount of scientific advice and the advice, as many people have said, is just exactly that. And the decisions on policy are, of course, eventually taken by politicians. And, you know, that is a, is a complicated relationship. I mean, I think there are some areas where we have the science, you know, has been listened to. But there are other areas, as you know, where there has been a big debate about the what you might do if you're just trying to suppress the virus, as opposed to all the concerns that have been arisen about the economy, education, and so on and so forth. I mean, one of the difficult things is that sometimes, or very often, you know, in a public health problem, you've got time to stop and think you've got time to make a decision. And as we've seen that very often isn't time with, a, with an epidemic. And I went through the AIDS epidemic where you know, it's much slower burn thing, but you've got to act pretty quickly. And sometimes of course, delaying a decision is a decision. And as we've seen with infectious diseases, you've got to act early. If you want to, you know, if your objective is to really minimize the amount of viral transmission. So there have been undoubtedly a lot of policy, political and science tensions, almost inevitably. But we have to learn going forward. And coming from a public health background, we disinvested in that area. I think that really is an issue. And the, the ability to join up the national with the local has been difficult. One of the things we emphasised in the Academy's report, in preparing for challenging winter, was how important it is to communicate with the public. Yeah. And that 
that local communication and the public is not a public there are many publics aren't there are many different communities as we know to communicate with and getting some of the messaging across in a simple way that people understand why the rules that have become so almost reified what's important is the epidemiology underlining it, the transmission that people need to understand and how to prevent it and I, I, I'm not always sure we've done so well with that and that's something which you know the academy is thinking a lot about what we do for our our strategy of working uh, with the public. So how do we get better I mean it's 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 always a challenge, I guess. Public health messaging is always a challenge, but clearly uh, it's, it's thrown up when you have something like the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but how do we get public health messaging right? Well, very difficult, uh, you know, to, but I think one of the key things, of course, is to be able to communicate in a language that people understand in a way where you get clear and consistent messaging. And on the things that matter to people about reducing contacts and you know washing hands respiratory hygiene and all those sort of things but getting them over in a simple way but also remembering that for a lot of people in particular communities English may not be their first language on the vaccines for example we need to be using I think you know community leaders you've seen that some areas now faith leaders being important in working with with communities to encourage them to take the vaccine and so on but equally the young people pointed out to us that a lot of the ways we communicate, of which I am guilty, is through the BBC, whereas in fact many of the ways that they communicate are on social media. So we're not very good at communicating in the way that young people want to communicate. So I'm not a communication expert, but I would start with saying let's get some real communication experts in here and be thinking about producing these messages with the public rather than just delivering them to them. So I'm wondering if you think as a result of of the pandemic that the public has got a greater knowledge and appreciation, I guess, of medical science, given all they've read and and seen about uh, both understanding the disease and and development of vaccines and so on. Is that true? And if it is, can we somehow capitalise that going forward in terms of both communicating with them and also taking medical science forward? To that extent, you know, this is an exciting time for science. Well, I learned about the R number at the School of Hygiene in 1983. I mean, nobody knew what the R number was. Now, actually, everybody knows what the R number is, or a lot of people know they've heard of it, but they probably can't tell you what it is <laughs> in arithmetic terms. But yeah, a lot of people do understand that. And um, as you know, everybody sort of knows what an epidemiologist is now. I often was mistaken to somebody who, who um, studied skin diseases, but um, that's a dermatologist and an epidemiologist studies epidemics or the spread of diseases in populations. So people have come to understand that. So I think there is a great interest in science, but I'm also quite struck by how much we need to improve science literacy generally. There's a lot of interest in science, but I think it's important that we have scientists, you know, in politics as well. We, we need politicians to understand some of the, the science messaging as well they've had to do a crash course on some of that many of them and I think this is an opportunity for people to see what an amazing career science can be but right now it's tough for some of the young scientists who've been a bit blown off course by um, not being able to finish their lab studies or whatever or problems doing their PhDs so again one of the priorities for my presidency at the academy 
will to be, be really about nurturing our future research leaders. We've seen how much science, how important science has been in this pandemic, but the public are really important too, because it's their buying into what they've been asked to do is actually critical at the moment to controlling this epidemic alongside the vaccine. So this whole idea of taking forward, creating the future leaders in science is very important alongside the business that science must also take the public with them and trust in science is a very big issue for the future. All really interesting. That's all we have time for. But uh, Damian Johnson, thank you very much. Thanks, Gavin. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Dame Anne Johnson, Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at University College London and President of the Academy of Medical Sciences. You can find more information about the Foundation, recordings of all our events, blogs and all episodes of this podcast on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Next week, I'll be discussing the potential for hydrogen-powered aircraft, and my guest will be Professor Pericles Belidis from Cranfield University.